it's a great day today. It's good to be in God's house. It's always good to be with y'all. And tomorrow is Christmas Eve, and the next day is Christmas Day, so this is, this is fantastic. And I think, fingers crossed, I think we're ready. After this service is over, we're going to scramble down the highway to my parents' house and spend uh, Christmas and then Christmas Eve morning with them and then be back here for Christmas Eve service. And I can't wait to see y'all here, many of you and, and many, of other, many others who aren't here this morning. Um, so I hope you've got great plans too. Let's dive into Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. We've been in this series uh, since the beginning of December about this chapter of Isaiah that talks of, that foretells the coming Messiah and what he's going to mean to us, what he would mean to the world. The first five verses we studied three, three weeks ago talk about why we need a Messiah. Why do we need a deliverer at all? And then last week we looked at verse 6, the most famous verse out of this passage that talks about how the coming Messiah will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and what that really means and who he would be. And today we're going to look at verse 7 that tells us what God is in the world doing right now. So Christmas time is a time when we get kind of nostalgic. I don't care how old you are. You may be 17. You may be 77. You may be 97. You may be 7. I don't know. You may be something with a 7 in it. But you probably are thinking about Christmas's past at this time. And I know for me, one of my Christmases I think about a lot is the, the first Christmas I was married. Uh, so we got married in 1992. Uh, so then in December of 92, uh, we were visiting my parents. This was early December. So people were just now putting up their, uh, putting up their trees and their lights and stuff. And my dad and my brother and I were walking out in the pasture that my grandpa owned. And we came upon this little grove of cedar trees. And my dad just kind of jokingly said, hey, one of these would make a good uh, Christmas tree for you and Carrie. And I said, you know, that's actually a really good idea. Do you think we can get one? And we found the one that was small enough that my dad could saw it down with his pocket knife, okay? So it was not a big tree. But I just thought, I'm the Christmas hero. I have found a tree, first of all, free of charge. We didn't have any money. Second of all, it's so much more personal. It came from family land. It didn't come from some impersonal Christmas tree lot. So I come dragging this tree in and, you know, just think my wife must think I'm the Christmas hero, of course. We get to Houston, we, we, we put it up and... Guess what? It won't really hold most of our ornaments. It's just not strong enough. So we had to go make a Walgreens run and buy some little cheapy plastic ornaments that would actually hang on this little tree. But still, I felt pretty good about it until a couple of days later when one of my friends came over to the apartment. And the first thing he said when he walked through the door is, hey, where did you get Charlie Brown's Christmas tree? So, uh, you know, that story reminds me of a point, and that is the Christmas spirit kind of suckers us sometimes doesn't it? The Christmas spirit convinces us because we watch the TV shows and the, and the movies. And if you watch Hallmark Channel starting in, Je in July, you, you've really bought into it, right? Um, and, and we just believe this is the year that I'm going to have the perfect Christmas. I'm going to give everyone just the right gift. They're all going to open the presents and their faces are going to light up and they're going to think I'm the greatest person ever. Um, this is the year that my long-lost loved one will finally come home. This is the year we'll be able to sit around the table at Christmas dinner and we won't argue and there won't be any tension and we'll, we'll cry and hug it out and everything will be great between us. This is the year I'm going to get that Red Ryder BB gun. I, or I'm gonna, even better, I'm going to get that, that sports car out on, on the front porch, you know, with the, with the big red ribbon on top, just like they show in the commercials. 
This is the year my lousy miser uncle is going to become a new man and come and show up at Christmas dinner and be in a good mood. This is the year my redneck cousin is going to kidnap my boss and I'm not going to get fired for it. Instead, he's going to give me a bonus and it's going to be big enough to put in a pool. You know, every year we're like Charlie Brown. We, we think we're going to kick, this is the year I'm going to kick that football. But every year the Christmas spirit sort of pulls that football out of the way, doesn't it? And we end up flat on our backs with sweaters that are too ugly or don't fit with uh, bills that need paying and work starts tomorrow and dishes that need washing. And, you know, I love Christmas time, but sometimes we buy in a little too hard to the idea of the perfect Christmas season. And it's a lot like how we do with the other things in our lives. We, we believe, you know, if, if I try hard enough as a parent, my kids are going to turn out perfect. And they're going to they're gonna be valedictorian and All-American at whatever sport they choose to, 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 to play. And, and, and they're going to give me all the credit and all the glory. And I'm going to feel great. I, I'm going to apply myself at work. And I'm going to get a raise. And I'm going to get a promotion. And I'm going to just accomplish all of my goals. When we put our hopes into these things, which are good things, by the way. Being a good employee, being a good parent, being a good spouse, being a good friend. These are all great goals, but when that becomes our focus, we're setting ourselves up for a failure. Because none of those things are strong enough to bear the weight of our expectations. See, the only thing we can really trust in is someone who's never failed. And that's the story of verse 7. Isaiah 9, 7 is about what God is trying to accomplish in this world. And I'll just tell you the point of the sermon at the beginning, because if you fall asleep, I want you to know it now, okay? So here's the point of the sermon. If you put your focus on anything other than what God's trying to accomplish in this world, you will experience profound disappointment. Victories along the way, sure, absolutely. But ultimately, it will not fulfill. Whereas... If you decide, hey, God created me, God created the whole world, God loves me, God has a plan for this world, why don't I jump on board with what he's trying to accomplish and help him using my God-given gifts, using my passions, my spiritual gifts, why don't I just apply myself to accomplishing what God's trying to do in the world around me? Then you will experience life more abundant. You'll experience freedom and victory and joy. And yes, hard times along the way, but they always lead to something good. Okay? So what does Isaiah 9, 7 tell us? Here's what God is trying to accomplish in the world. It says in verse 7, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So again, remember, these are words written 700 years before Jesus was born. When it talks about he will sit on David's throne, what is that talking about? It's talking about the throne of the nation of Israel. David was Israel's greatest king. And so they had this idea the Messiah would be sort of a latter-day David, a David comeback who would, who would reign over the world in the way David did with putting God first and glorifying him. So what does this say about what God is accomplishing through Jesus? Ever since that first Christmas, 2,000 years ago, what God has been accomplishing in our world up until today, there are three things. First of all, peace. Here's what God's about. God is about bringing peace to this world of the increase. That's the old way of translating that word. In, in the New Bibles, it says greatness. But of the increase of His government and peace. And I think what that means is that the influence of Jesus Christ over this world is just going to keep growing. More and more people are going to keep coming into His kingdom. And as the influence of Jesus over this planet increases, peace will increase with it. 
Now, I know immediately we get some pushback from that because we say, well, wait a second. What about the fact that you can look down through history and see that there have been governments that were, that were ostensibly Christian governments, kings who proclaim themselves to be Christians, governors, presidents, etc., even churches that have done terribly evil things. Think about the Crusades in the Middle Ages, how we sent people to the, to the, uh, to the Middle East to, to fight these terrible, bloody wars for, for no good reason. Think about the Inquisition and how Christ's church itself was punishing people for believing uh, differently in some, some minor area of doctrine. You can find examples all over the place, even into the present day. So what is this really saying? Well, first of all, the idea that Christ's influence is increasing is provably true. I mean, you, you look at, at, at I mean, and people like the Harringtons and the Sims can tell you the, the numbers of people coming into the kingdom of God today are greater than they've ever been. Uh, in the Muslim world, for instance, and you don't hear this a lot because people who come to Christ in that world can't really be open and outspoken about it because of the danger of that. But for, in Iran, for instance, and in other Muslim nations, more people are coming to Christ than it ever, ever before in human history. A lot of them, are ha it's happening through visions and dreams. They're seeing a vision of Jesus and saying, ah, He is the Messiah. Um, in places like South America, Asia, Africa, especially Sub-Saharan Africa, the church is exploding, just growing by leaps and bounds. Um, did you know that by the middle of this century, there will be more Christians in China than in any other country on the face of the earth? China, a place where the gospel has been illegal for half a century. So God is doing incredible things. But at the same time, we look around and say, well, wait a second, where is the peace? Sometimes we're tempted to be like Longfellow who wrote that, that uh, Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. That one verse says, but in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So what does it mean when it says of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end? You know, that word peace, and we talked about this last week, in Hebrew, it's the word shalom. You've probably heard that word before, right? And it doesn't mean, in the Hebrew, shalom doesn't just mean that wars are going to cease and there's an absence of conflict. It literally means that things are going to be set right, that there's going to be, things are going to be the way they were meant to be, the way they were originally before our sin messed this world up, that there will be perfect peace, perfect order, that things will be the way they should be. And that's what Jesus came to do. You see, as, as evangelical Christians, we sometimes overly emphasize our individual salvation. And all we're about is, hey, walk down the aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized, and you're in the kingdom of God. And that is absolutely true. God's salvation is free to anybody who wants it. But Jesus didn't just come to save individual believers. Jesus came to redeem a whole world. Jesus came to put this world right. And part of that we see in his earthly life. What did Jesus do when he was here? For about three and a half years, when he was, in, when he was doing his professional ministry, his full-time ministry, what, would, what did Jesus do before he went to the cross? He trained his disciples, he taught, and he performed miracles. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Jesus do those miracles? Because after all, he would heal a blind person, he would, he would raise a lame person up to be able to walk, he would, he would, he would resuscitate a dead person, but all those people were going to get sick and die again someday anyway, so what good did it do? Well, scholars will tell you Jesus was doing those miracles as signs, so we knew that he was Messiah, so we knew that he was more than a man. But then others will say there's another reason too. That's true, but there's another reason why Jesus did miracles. And I think I agree with this one. It's because he wanted people to see 
This is what it's like where I'm from. Where I'm from, blind people see. Where I'm from, deaf people hear. Where I'm from, people who are crippled are able to walk and leap and run again. Where I'm from, dead people rise. Where I'm from, there's not hatred, there's not sorrow, there's not pain. Where I'm from, there is shalom. And I'm giving you a sign every time I heal someone, every time I do a good deed, you're seeing just a little taste, a little foretaste of the kingdom of God to come. Don't you want to be part of this? That's what Jesus' miracles were about. And that's what we have to look forward to. There's a missionary doctor in Liberia a few years ago um, who contracted Ebola. Remember when that that terrible epidemic of Ebola was going through that African nation. And this missionary doctor who was from America was shipped back to the States to get treatment. And he almost died, but he recovered. And after he recovered, what did he do? He got on a plane and he flew back home. He flew back to Africa. And people questioned him. They said, are you crazy? I mean, you're lucky to be alive. Why don't you just, why don't you just stay home? Haven't you done enough? And he said, I wasn't, I wasn't saved by Jesus just so I could sit at home and be safe. My job is to be over there spreading the kingdom of God. And that's what happens when people come into God's kingdom. Peace goes with it. That that missionary doctor was doing exactly what Jesus did, even though he doesn't have the same power. Every person I heal, every person I minister to, I'm giving them a little taste of the kingdom. So to get back to the question earlier, what about all the bad things that have been done by Christians and by Christian governments? I think you can honestly say those people may have may have claimed Christ as their Savior. They may legitimately have been Christian, but they weren't acting on behalf of Jesus when they did those things. No one who does those kinds of things is spreading the kingdom of God. They're spreading their own kingdom. What the world needs is more of what Jesus taught, not less. What the world needs is more of what Jesus brought into this world. More healing, more peace, more love, not less. So He came to bring peace. He is bringing peace into this world with every single person who comes into his kingdom. Secondly, he came to bring justice and righteousness. Now, I know those are two things, but it's really uh, uh, two words that mean essentially the same thing. It says he, came, he, he is establishing it in justice and righteousness. There's a little subtle difference between those two words. The word justice refers to fairness for the weak and the oppressed, for people who don't have enough, for people who don't have anyone to speak for them. We see this in Jesus' life. What did Jesus do? Jesus spent most of his time with the people that the rest of the world wanted to ignore. I mean, even at, his, even at his birth, the people who came were shepherds. I don't know if you know this or not, but in ancient times, shepherds were considered dirty. They weren't allowed to go into the synagogue. They weren't allowed to give testimony in a trial. And yet, shepherds were the ones at Jesus' birth. In his life, Jesus spent so much of his time with people who the religious society would shun. Think of him uh, embracing a leper. There was that story in Matthew about he saw a leper, uh, a man with this terrible skin disease that everyone was so terrified of. To even be in the presence of a leprous person was dangerous. And so if you touched a leper, you were considered ritually unclean. Yet Jesus, who we all know could have looked at this man from a distance and said, stay where you are. Don't get me dirty. I'll just speak a word of healing and you'll be healed. But he didn't do that. Instead, he walked up and touched this man. He healed him with a touch when he didn't have to. And I think it's because he knew this man hadn't been touched physically by any human being since the day he was diagnosed. And he wanted him to know, you are loved. You are important. 
Think about him standing in between a woman caught in the act of adultery who's about to be stoned to death, standing between her and her accusers, rescuing this woman's life and saying to those self-righteous men holding rocks, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus wasn't excusing anything the woman had done. He wasn't saying, oh, everything's relative. She was just following her heart. No, he was saying, listen, we're all sinners. We're all broken. None of us has the right to condemn someone else. He rescued that woman. He saved her life. He said, go and sin no more. Think of him on the day when his disciples were so indignant because parents were coming up and bringing their little kids to Jesus and wanting him to bless those children. Their attitude was, get these kids away. You may or may not know this, but in ancient times, children were seen as much less valuable than they are today. That's not to say that individual parents didn't love their kids. Many did. But as a society, people didn't treasure children the way we do today. The idea of pouring money into public schools to educate an entire generation, the idea of, of uh, blessing kids and investing in them just wasn't heard of. You, kids were not really worth anything until they were old enough to work and earn money for the family. And if it was a, a female child, she wasn't worth anything until she mar- you married her off and she bore you grandchildren. So Jesus came along and gave children dignity. His disciples are trying to run off these parents with their little children. He said, no, let the little children come to me. The Bible actually says Jesus was indignant with his disciples. He was mad at them. He said, let them come to me. Because if you don't have a heart like one of these children, you can't even get into my kingdom. You know, there's a book written by a historian, O.M. Backey, called The Beginning of Childhood. And it says that the idea that childhood is important, that children are valuable, traces directly back to Jesus. And after that, everything changed. Jesus was there for the oppressed. He was there for the weak and the forgotten. So that's justice. Righteousness means essentially the same thing, but from the angle of we do this because we want to be conformed to the character of God. We are all sinners, but we're all created by God in His image. And there's that dichotomy. We couldn't be more different from Him, and yet He's our Father. And Jesus' whole purpose is I'm going to make you just like him. I died on a cross to forgive you of your your past sins. And now my Holy Spirit is coming to live in you if you're willing. And bit by bit, piece by piece, moment by moment, to make you more and more like him in character, in thought, in love. Someday, this is one of the great things about Christmas. At Christmas time, we don't just celebrate when Jesus came. We celebrate the fact that he's coming back. And someday when he comes back, this world is going to be completely different. It's going to be a world full of justice, full of righteousness. And some people ask, well, okay, if Jesus created the world, like it says in John chapter 1, if the world was perfect and then we came along in sin and that's why there's all these problems, well, then if Jesus comes back and recreates the world and recreates us, and well, then why won't we do that again? Why won't it just be this unending cycle of us sinning and us falling and Him having to redeem us again? It's because we will be redeemed this time. And here's the best way I can explain it. So, kind of a silly story, but it's true. My dad, when he was in junior high, he had a basketball tournament. So, Saturday morning in December, uh, they played a game at, say, 10 o'clock, and then they had, didn't have another one until about 1. Now, this was a small town. This is the late 1950s. Uh, parents didn't really need to keep track of their kids because the world just seemed safer back then. My dad played in his basketball game, and then he and his friends said, hey, let's walk to the movies. Let's go to a movie. 
Because, you know, back in those days, they played, they had Saturday mornings. They had, they had a movie all day long. So my dad and his friends said, let's go, to our, let's go to the movies between our two basketball games. But first, let's stop and get something to eat. So it's Christmas time. So what they bought was they each bought one of those big fat candy canes, you know, the kind you only see at Christmas, and a little carton of eggnog. And so they went to the movies, they ate and drank, and then they played their basketball game. Well, guess what happens when you run up and down a basketball court numerous times with nothing in your stomach but candy cane and eggnog? Don't say it out loud, but guess what happens, right? I'm not going to be explicit, but it's not good. I will say this, my dad, uh, that's been close to 60 years, and there there are two holiday foods he will not touch. <laughs> with a 10-foot pole, and it's peppermint and it's eggnog. And we can identify, right? I mean, if you've, if you've experienced the negative effects of some kind of food, you don't ever want it again. And here's the point of that disgusting story. When Christ returns and establishes a world of justice and righteousness, the kind of world He created in the first place, we'll be different because we'll be redeemed. We will have experienced sin. Something that once tasted really good to us, but left a bad after effect. We will have been redeemed from all of that. And we will have lost our taste for that entirely. It won't won't seem attractive to us. It won't seem wise to us. We will want nothing to do with it. Because we've been there. Because we've seen what it's done to us. We've seen what it did to our families. We've seen what it did to our Savior. And we'll live in a world of justice and righteousness and we will be just and righteous like Him. And then He'll bring us a third thing and that is peace. That is is what God is about in this world. He's establishing peace. He's establishing justice and righteousness. And He's establishing hope. That's the third thing. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. And that is the hope we have of a world that is perfect that will never end of a world that is just and righteous and peaceful and free and joyous and full of celebration that will never end. And I know earlier I said some things about Christmas time that made it sound like I was a Grinch. The truth is I love this time of year. The truth is I won't sleep well tonight or tomorrow night because I'll be so excited. I'm like a kid at Christmas time. But get this. Listen to me. I hope you have the best Christmas you've ever had. I hope that you did get the perfect gift. I hope you enjoy eating, but you don't gain a pound. I hope that that you get everything you wanted and it all fits. I hope that somebody comes along and pays all your bills for you. That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? I hope it's the best Christmas you've ever had. But even if it is, it's just a pale imitation of the feast that's yet to come. The celebration we're going to experience over the next 48 hours, even at its best, is just a, a tiny little foretaste of the eternal celebration we'll experience, the eternal reunion, the eternal celebration, the eternal joy. That's what's coming for us. That is what is our hope. Because that, unlike everything else we possess, everything else we get excited about, that is one thing nobody can take away from us. That is one thing we can't lose if it's ours. So Tim Keller tells a story of uh, years ago, decades ago, two literature professors at Oxford one of whom was named J.R.R. Tolkien. Heard of him? He wrote The Lord of the Rings, among other things. The other one was an unbeliever. They were friends. They talked all the time. They were talking about why 
old legends and fairy tales, what we would describe as fantasy literature today, why those kinds of stories are popular down through the centuries, right? I mean, we still, we still tell stories about King Arthur and his court. We still tell stories uh, about, you know, Cinderella and Snow White, etc. Um, these stories are ancient, and yet they're still popular. Even in our day, Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. That became so popular 10 years ago when the movies were made. Star Wars is another example, fantasy series that is enduringly popular. Harry Potter uh, that came out uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s, fantastically popular to this day. All of them have certain themes in common, and that's what these two professors decided was the reason these things, these kinds of stories continue to be popular over time is because they touch on certain themes that are attractive to us. In all these stories, there's a battle between good and evil. And in all these stories, there's a hero who steps forward and says, listen, I may not be big, I may not be strong, I may not be impressive, but I'm going to face down evil even if it costs me everything. In all these stories, there's the idea that death is not the end. There is an afterlife. And so people in these stories who die are able to be reunited with the hero toward the end. In all these stories, there's a note of resurrection. Somebody dies in the story and comes back. In in all these stories, love conquers hate. In all these stories, good triumphs over evil, and love never really dies. So they're talking about this, and they're getting more and more excited, these two old uh, literature professors. And the one who was an unbeliever said, you know, that's great, but it's a shame that none of those stories are true. Because I'd really love to live in a world where that kind of stuff was true. And so Tolkien said, well, that's the thing. They are true. Those stories are all just a retelling of the one main story, the greatest story, the story that makes more of a difference than any other. Because Jesus was the hero who stepped up and said, I may not be impressive. You may not like what I, you may not see me as a hero, but I'm going to take the weight of the world on my shoulders. I'm going to face down evil all by myself. Jesus was the one who gave his life for our sakes. Jesus was the one who died so we could go free. And three days later, he did rise again. He did conquer death. Jesus is the one who opened the way so that we could live in eternal life, so that we could see our loved ones again, so that we could live in a world without pain and sorrow and tears. All these things are true, even if the stories themselves are, are only images of it. Now, he told, he, they had this long conversation, and, and the unbelieving professor walked away with a lot on his mind. He did not become a believer that night, but he did eventually, and his name is C.S. Lewis. That's a true story. That's how C.S. Lewis became a believer in Jesus, because he realized, hey, the reason we desire these things so strongly, the reason we keep telling these same stories over and over again is because deep down inside, we know it's true. There is a hero who stepped out for us and won the battle once and for all. That is our hope. That is our hope that we cannot lose. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm so glad you're here. But ask yourself the question, have you really researched the person of Jesus? I'm not asking you, have you been to church? I'm not asking you what you think of Christians because that's a totally different conversation. I'm asking you, have you researched the person of Jesus, who he really was? Here at First Baptist, one of the four challenges we're giving our members in 2019 is to read the entire Bible. And you're welcome to join in with us. There are reading plans out there on the all-in table when you walk out the door to your right. If that's too big of a, a task for you, let me just challenge you to read the book of Matthew. First book of the New Testament, the story of Jesus' life. And just ask yourself, who was this man really? 
Was he, what, was he who he said he was? Was he who the Word of God says he is? And if so, what differences does that make for me? Isn't that an important enough question to devote a little bit of your time to researching? And for those of us who would say, yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus, here's what I want to leave you with. Peace, justice and righteousness and hope. Those jobs aren't complete. God is still actively spreading those things in this world. So my question to you and me is, what are we doing about it? We like to, we like to say, hey, man, what, what's wrong with this world? Why doesn't God do something about it? And God wants to ask us the same question. What are you doing about it? You're my body. You're my body on earth. Why are you not out there doing the will of God and spreading his kingdom? The last phrase of this verse says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You know, we don't use that word zeal very often, but what it means is what God is passionate about. Let me ask you, what are you zealous about? Where does your zeal lie? Because there's lots of good things you can be zealous about. It's good to want to be successful. It's good to want to provide well for your family. It's good to want to raise happy kids and be a good parent. It's good to want to meet Mr. or Ms. Wright and have a long and happy life with them. All these things are good, but the best life, the life that matters, is when we're zealous for the things that God is zealous for. Unfortunately, a lot of our, a lot of our Christianity boils down to us being like kids on Christmas Eve and we're asking our parents for you know, that particular video game we can't live without or that particular Barbie doll or that particular set of roller skates or whatever it is. And our parents are like, yeah, yeah you're getting something good tomorrow. But listen, the, the real focus is I want you to get a good education. I want you to develop into a, a healthy, well-balanced adult. I want you to do great things in the world. Let's not waste God's time by only asking for Barbie dolls and video games, okay? Let's be about what he's zealous about. So the challenge I would give to you and me as believers today, in fact, this Christmas is, Lord, make me zealous for what you're zealous for. Lord, teach me to weep for the things that make you weep and to rejoice for the things that make you rejoice. And this year in 2019, I pray that I'd get most excited about the things that you're most passionate about. Can you imagine what would happen in your life and in our church if we all took on that mindset, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will, will accomplish this. That's where we ought to be.